0: Don Nicol is English professor at Memorial University in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland or Newfoundland?
1: Newfoundland. Newfoundland,
0: Newfoundland, sorry, okay. And author of... Pope's Pope's Literary Legacy,
1: which came out in 1992. And more recently... I've edited the facsimile edition of the new Founding Hospital for Wit, which is a collection of 18th century satire, appeared in six volumes between 1768 and 1773.
0: And currently you are working on a new book on the history of copyright. Yes. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you. So, let's cover the history of copyright in 25 minutes. We were talking about Daedalus, Icarus' father.
1: The nature of invention.
0: The nature of invention. Which
1: is often seen as the precursor to literary property.
0: And he saw this guy using the fish skeleton to saw something and figured that was a pretty good idea, so he killed him, the guy that was doing it, and claimed that idea as his own.
1: Stole the invention.
0: Did he make any money off that? Well, Black and Decker picked up on it much later, so... (laughs) He <laughs> <You> did okay.
1: <laughs> no, I, I use that as a kind of an archetypal example of theft of ideas, uh, seeing something that somebody else is using uh, and appropriating that uh, that invention. And uh, quite often, uh, you know, that's the uh, seen as the akin to plagiarism, the, the kind of the, the theft of words, someone else's ideas.
0: It's kind of sickening these days when you see these little phrases with the TM after them. Yes, like. Olympic. Yeah. All of them are doing it, not obviously to thwart literary expression, but to uh, make sure that another company doesn't uh, rip off that specific phrase to then confuse whatever product they might have with the organization that's trademarked that mm-hmm. little phrase, I assume. Yes. But we're yeah. getting sidetracked already
1: The idea of copyright arose, well, it's always been around, but uh, you know, people have always claimed you know, like. Know, Sophocles' Oedipus Rex, and we've all, always associated authors with works, Shakespeare's plays, uh, Milton's Paradise Lost, and, and so forth. But in the early days of publishing, it was generally the printer who made any money off the printed works. Uh, the printer was the one who uh, took the risk of uh, setting the type, you know, buying the paper, uh, printing off. Uh, quite often, they Bound their own material, and uh, hope that someone would buy their buy their product.
0: Look at Shakespeare. I mean, uh, if, it, if it wasn't for those early printers, we may have lost a lot of his works. We they, might well have done. Because they weren't even they were they were nothing much was published during his lifetime. It was ten or fifteen yeah. years after he died, right?
1: Yeah, the uh, first folio of oh, 1623 was the first gathering of his works, but. Things like Hamlet had been published, uh, had been printed. Uh, you know, so There was the, the bastard quarto of Hamlet where we assumed that somebody was standing in the audience writing down these great lines as, as uh, he or she heard them and then ran off to the nearest printer and said, I, I've got this great play, it's called Hamlet, uh, and here it is. And so somebody had actually taken the trouble to submit a transcription and and not that they claimed authorship of it, but they certainly, we, we imagine, why would anybody go to that uh, trouble if they didn't hope to make a few pounds shillings and, and pence out of it.
0: Shakespeare made his money by bringing in audiences to watch his plays, yeah, he, rather he, he, than he, uh, printing anything up and selling it.
1: He made his money from the box office, which was good, as well as uh, patronage, which was the traditional Yeah. Uh, the system... But uh, it, would, it really it didn't
0: do him much good to, to print it all out and let everyone become, a, you know, familiar with the text, because then other troops could produce these plays and make money off his work without him seeing the money.
1: It's quite possible, yes, although there were very few um, acting troops at the time. Mm-hmm. Still... Uh, you're right. He, there, there just wasn't the market for plays in print at that time. Although, you know, it's still fledgling days. Obviously, there had to be an interest in Hamlet, uh, and it followed like hand in glove that if you saw the play and loved it so much, you would want uh, a copy of you know you know, you'd want to remember those brilliant solilo- soliloquies, and uh, you'd, you'd welcome a, a reminder of the play. The uh, and this is something that. was uh, brought to perfection in the 18th century with people like David Garrick, uh, who was quite the entrepreneur, managed to... He had a play called The Male Coquette, and and according to uh, this fellow Arthur Murphy, whose manuscripts I've been going over, uh, he ran through a dozen editions of his play, one or two of which survive to this day, but we have to assume that these things were printed up very quickly, and they sold like hotcakes at the theater in the streets just outside, and that was the end of them. You know, people would take them home, and have them have a look, or you know, save them for the outhouse or whatever. Uh, and that uh, so that was p- that became part of the um, profit uh, incentive for playwrights, and, you know, the theater managers and whatnot. Playgoers were affluent enough not only just to. Paid for their ticket to see the play, but they were also, uh, they might have a, a shilling or two left over at the end to buy a copy of the play.
0: So then take us back to the origins of copyright as we know it today. Well, it's buried in the mist of time, of course, but it's perhaps easier
1: to start off with what led up to the Copyright Act in, in Great Britain. The first ever Copyright Act in the world was, was the Copyright Act of 1709. 17- 10 came into effect in April of 1710. After several attempts to um, to pass the legislation, copyright had had been pretty much an ad hoc affair up until uh, the Copyright Act gave rights to the authors of the texts. Uh, before that, it was pretty much how the particular author dealt with the particular printer and or bookseller. Milton, whose uh, Paradise Lost came out in 1667, we have what uh, Philip Gaskell describes as uh, the first ever royalty agreement. He
0: got five quid.
1: Right? He got five quid for the, for the manuscript of Paradise Lost, and another five quid when the, the first twelve hundred were printed off and, and presumably sold. And then he was promised another five quid, I believe in, in the event of a second edition, and I believe that happened <laughs> it's, it's never it never seemed to have been out of print since it certainly is uh, widely available to this day and it's um, obviously you can download it on the on the web in many forms and formats and so uh, Milton was is often seen to be you know the this notoriously ripped off author. He's taken to the cleaners by uh, Samuel Simmons, uh, the the printer. And yet, if we look at it before the fact, as it were, when Simmons was being approached by this old, blind author, John Milton, with this manuscript, he didn't know what Paradise Lost was. Would people buy a long, drawn-out poem, by a kind of a worn-out, clapped-out Puritan about... Adam and Eve and uh, the fall of man and, and the whole Genesis uh, writ large sort of idea. And the answer to that was yes, but Simmons had no idea when he printed Paradise Lost that, that it, would, it would be a massive bestseller. He must have had some idea that he was going to make his money back, though. He must have, but still, y- who knows? I mean, you don't know that you know the Da Vinci Code is going to sell a thousand copies no. or a hundred thousand copies.
0: No, no, but I imagine what happened was he would have read it and thought, "No, this is this is oh, this is okay. This is pretty good." Well,
1: no, that's debatable. A lot of these
0: booksellers, uh, they didn't read their books. But They got to ju- They got to base their risk taking on something.
1: They they would presumably have farmed it out to people they thought yeah. had literary taste and uh, great judgment. However, you know, one of the great uh, entrepreneurs of the uh, 18th century was this Scottish um, bookseller named Andrew Miller who was notoriously ill-read but he, he had good advice. He had, he had people... He, it's like he, George
0: Bush. Then. Yeah.
1: You know, not quite, I wouldn't damn Miller so, so easily but but yeah, he was Samuel Johnson described Miller as uh, he, was, he was quite uh, magnanimously drunk half the time. He was he was highly su- successful, pr- pretty much because he sort of stayed away from that yeah. idea of selection of uh, what, what will sell and what what won't. Uh, and he did he, well. He, he had to have a, you know, had to have good instincts because he had uh, he listed James Thompson, uh, his countryman a fellow Scott, His Seasons was the, uh, one of the most popular selling poems of the 18th century. And then he fell in with Henry Fielding. Uh, he was publisher of Joseph Andrews, uh, Tom, Tom Jones. Jones, and Amelia. And Miller was renowned for rewarding his authors, uh, in particular with Fielding. His profits rose uh, astronomically. Uh, he was paid something like 750 pounds for the uh, the manuscript of Tom Jones, and he he offered a thousand guineas for Amelia. And Amelia, of course, is hardly ever known today. Nobody reads Amelia much. I, I'm sure I'm pretty sure it's never been filmed, unlike Joseph Andrews and Tom Jones. But you know, again, you got to look at it before the yeah. fact. Maybe Miller is rewarding him for the success of Tom Jones.
0: Yeah, maybe Amelia did sell, uh, sell a bunch of copies. But mm, no, it no, wasn't it that. Didn't. It wasn't as popular as Tom it's Jones. Yeah. yeah.
1: And, and Miller was one of the backers of uh, Samuel Johnson's dictionary. As well, he was, there were several because it was such a large project. Uh, the dictionary needed a small sort of corporation of booksellers, a, g- a gathering of, of various uh, like, written, you know, John and Paul Napton, Robert Doddsley, uh, Miller. The uh, Tonson brothers and and a few others, Haws, uh, so forth. But Miller, Miller was the, the one who kind of went around and poked Chivy Johnson for the the final text, and he, he was the one who who, who sort of had to make sure that that last sheet, whatever it was, the Zed, finally made it to the the printer's shop, William Strong. And and the story goes that. When uh, the printer's devil delivered the last sheet, Miller said, thank God I've done with them. And when he returned to Johnson, Johnson asked him, what what did Mr. Miller say? And he said, thank God I've done with them. Johnson responded, well, thank God that Mr. Miller thanks God for anything. So this was a great work, but a huge risk because... You know, they signed a contract in 1747, 1746, actually, and they they published a plan to the dictionary in 1747 appealing to the Earl of Chesterfield to be its patron, and the Earl of Chesterfield agreed, but then kept fobbing off Johnson, so much so that Johnson just went away in disgust. He'd, He'd wasted so many hours in the antechamber to the Earl of Chesterfield, and it became obvious that Chesterfield just... Didn't want to associate with Johnson, who was, after all, kind of twitchy and mm-hmm. smelly, and, and yeah, he's a lexicographer after all. Mm-hmm. What, uh, what's that? And so, uh, in the uh, in the end, it took. Uh, you know, Johnson was contracted to complete this dictionary in three years, uh, hopelessly optimistic. Mm-hmm. And in the meantime, of course, you know, he's 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 writing the Rambler, and you know, some of the some of the most respected, highly polished journalism ever. And you know his wife dies, and life gets in the way. He's got this garret uh, in Gough Square, where he's employing uh, a half dozen amanuenses, and one of those, uh, Robert Shields, you know, he's close to, and the man dies. And you know, Johnson has to cope with a lot of grief—not only just the usual publisher's grief, but uh, personal grief as well. And. And so,
0: but let's get let's get to the copyright. Then, yeah, so the
1: copyright. Well, the, the idea is that, uh, that here, when we're talking about copyright, this was a, a project that, that was contracted for by booksellers. Yeah. Uh, but it doesn't, you know, in the end, you have to depend on the longevity of this character to complete the project, and 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 then uh, the copyright, pretty much, you know, it subsisted in the in the uh, in the booksellers. Mm-hmm, okay. uh, they're the ones Just who. back at to. that point
0: where, you know, this was after that, 1710.
1: This is after, yeah. So it, it, you know, it was Johnson's dictionary, but Johnson was pretty much, while we had this idea that you know, authors were, you know, uh, even lexicographers were the authors of their texts and and uh, and had rights of ownership. Still, Johnson was paid. You know, he, we did have this contract, but this contract is sort of out with the Copyright Act. Um, you know, it it is well, and we start private contracts today uh, to do with the the idea of copy. Initially there was this confusion over the word copyright. It didn't even come into existence, uh, you know, in terms of uh, correspondence and uh, it's not in Johnson's Dictionary, for example copyright he, uh, Mm. he, uh, it is um, um something that really didn't get coined until after the Copyright Act had been uh, passed. Uh, Pope used it in his correspondence in Gay and Swift and so forth uh, a bit later, but the original Copyright Act was, in fact, called you know, uh, an act for the encouragement of learning. Uh, it's Good Queen Anne, um, uh, Good Queen Anne's Act, uh, the Eighth of Queen Anne, and uh, it had to do... It, it, it started off recognizing that there were a lot of bad practices in the trade, you know, piracy and 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 whatnot.
0: And, and various people were like, I think one of the concerns, for example, with Milton was that his granddaughter was in poverty yes. while while the actual printer they were the Tonsons were making the booksellers yeah. making. Money hand over fist, hand over
1: fist, and uh, it was Samuel Johnson who mounted the benefit for for uh, Milton's granddaughter in I think around 17, 1750s. Okay. Uh, yes, because there was a new edition coming out uh, with you know, new biographical uh, preface and, 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 um, and so forth. Uh, one of the things that booksellers did to maintain their claim to literary property was to, you know, to tidy it up every now and then, to uh, to hire somebody to to write a biography of the author or somebody to do an appendix or footnotes. In, sh- in the case of Shakespeare, we go through various editors like Rowe, Nicholas Rowe, who had been the poet laureate, Alexander Pope.
0: They all came up with and, their own. And Lewis Tybald, yeah footnotes and
1: some did Pope was grilled uh, mercilessly by Lewis Tybalt uh, over his a lot of his readings Pope, Pope had offered Shakespeare's text as the best which was always, always an incentive to buy the latest edition you're getting the best text And Pope had promised his readers in his preface that he'd gone over the old cordos and the folios and and, and consulted as many manuscripts as he could. Come up with what was closest
0: to the original author's intent.
1: Yes. There was also the idea that there's nothing better than the latest edition. Quite often, the first edition came out, get that. But when a third or fourth or fifth edition, readers were advised or tempted to throw away their first editions because... Obviously, the latest edition was going to be the best in, in their minds.
0: That's what the, the booksellers wanted. The
1: booksellers obviously wanted to sell more copies that yeah. way.
0: New improved. And so 1710, so was it a sort of a battle between the booksellers and the authors? So what came out in 17? Well, in
1: 1710, the Copyright Act you know, recognized this problem, and they're often quite dramatic about print booksellers, wives and children starving in the street, and this prospect of doom and gloom for the trade. And so this was often caused because other printers were moving in on on their territory, stealing books right out from
0: under them, almost like in, in our terms, scanning them and and then printing them themselves. Sure. And making money off them. Yeah, underselling. Think, so in other words, it was more the printers that were uh, concerned that their livelihood was was going to be uh, undermined versus the author. The author sense. Back then, seems to have been of, of little consideration. They were on the
1: back burner, definitely. Yeah. I mean,
0: they couldn't obviously. Printers
1: needed authors to provide the text, the yeah, type yeah. they set. Needed yeah. manuscripts. However, authors really—it was gentleman's game. Really, you know, you don't. One doesn't expect to be paid for one's writing, except obviously Milton was <laughs> pretty hard up, yeah. and had written this phenomenally brilliant poem. So the Copyright Act uh, recognized this problem and, and offered a penalty of, uh, for any pirated copies of a, a penny a sheet
0: found. Penny a sheets. In other words, if you're a publisher, you signed an agreement with the author to publish their work, and you find another book out there that some other printer has published. Each page of that book, you get to you go take to the justice, the magistrate, and say you need to find this other company and give me the money? Something
1: like that, yes. Now when they say a penny, a sheet, that's slightly open to interpretation, but generally they mean a sheet, like the full printed sheet. So uh, four pages so on p- it, or six yeah, pages? It could, 16, depending uh, on the format. Yeah. Basically. Of course, you had to find the printer, the piratical printer, yeah. and quite often they were mobile. They would, mm-hmm. they would move. Night by night. Uh, yeah. They didn't tend to put their addresses on their title pages quite often in legitimate imprints you would find. That it'd be London, printed by William Strong, sold by J Dodsley at the Pall Mall or wherever. So title pages, they acted like uh, there were an advertisement as well as a kind of a license yeah. that told you where, where the shop was and who the proprietor was. So the Copyright Act provided penalties for piracies, but it also set up, copyright libraries, and this was something that was, it was a bit convoluted, because of course they'd started up, tried to get the Act upon the expiration of the old Licensing Act in 1695, which was the main regulating legislation, but they didn't quite know what to do, so copyright was in limbo from 1695 to 1710, and so it was a bit of a free-for-all, although... I suspect there were basic limitations, like, you know, you can only pirate so much before you've sort of saturated the market, perhaps. You know, I'm sure the life of a piratical bookseller was not luxury. So the Copyright Act set up three copyright libraries, Cambridge, Oxford, and one in London, the King's Library in London. But by the time they got got round to passing the Copyright Act, it, it had been preceded a couple of years by the Act of Union with Scotland. And so by the time they got around to figuring out the, this idea of this uh, clause to do with copyright libraries, deposit libraries, somebody said, oh, by the way, we're, we're now, uh, Great Britain now includes Scotland, and they have more universities up there than we do. Uh, but they had to include them. So in the end, it, it got up to, I think it was like nine copyright libraries. and so
0: Yeah, every single publication that came out, had to send a copy to each one of these deposit libraries. They
1: were meant to send them to the Stationers' Hall, which would then distribute the copies. And so, so there were meant to be four in England, you know, Oxford, Cambridge, Scion College, and and the King's Library in Scotland. Of course, they had you know, Glasgow University, Edinburgh University, Saint Andrews. Aberdeen University and the Advocates Library in in Edinburgh so in the end uh, this seemed like a minor thing uh, this idea of the deposit copies when it was going to be three but now it's nine so imagine every time you publish uh, an edition you are supposed to give up nine copies and when you get to something like Johnson's Dictionary where the the thing is huge, costs four pounds uh, retail uh, it's a lot of outlay for the bookseller. and so that's something that irritated them, somewhat, in order to establish their copyright.
0: But that's what happened. Yeah. Now, what about the the protection, specifically in terms of the number of years? Yeah.
1: Initially, the Copyright Act set out the terms of of ownership, 14 years. If the author happened to be alive at the end of that 14-year term, he or she could have another 14-year term. So the maximum was 28 years. After that, after the expiration of 28 years, it was meant to be the work was meant to be public domain. This seemed well enough at the time. However, in terms of the trade, they kept acting as they had always done. Basically, pretended that the Copyright Act was over there in some other universe, and that they were the ones who always would own copyright. So there's there was this notion banding about of perpetual monopoly that. We've got this copyright, but what we also have is common law, and this is the realm in which we've always operated, where we sign a receipt saying, I give you, the author, ten pounds to publish your work
0: forever at infinitum. Listen, so in other words, the common law basically said, whatever the deal is struck between the publisher and the author, then that stands.
1: That stands. So yeah. the
0: author can say, yes, for the rest of my life, here, hear, here's... here's 10 pounds, I'm happy you can publish it, mm-hmm. or the author could have said okay, I want 10 pounds for until the first edition is sold out, and then I want a piece of the action from then mm-hmm. on it, so what these these guys were saying was whatever the arrangement that we've put in place with the author is what should stand rather than any other Yeah. but the, but then yeah. again, the Copyright Act wouldn't that protect the, the author primarily
1: I don't think too many authors were particularly aware of the Copyright Act they I'm sure it was discussed, but largely misunderstood. In fact, one of the first actions in Chancery was initiated by Alexander Pope. His letter suggests a certain amount of confusion about uh, pressing a copyright suit, because you had to go get, you know, the paperwork from the bookseller and the, the entries from Stationers' Hall. And so forth. John Gay, Pope's intimate friend, also was engaged in a lawsuit over a play called Polly. It was the. It was a, actually it wasn't the play itself, but the script. Polly was banned from the stage. Gay had become an enormous success with the Baker's Opera. It was the most popular play of the 18th century. The you know, this homegrown pastoral opera, uh, and so Gay. Came out with a sequel, Polly, you know, one of the yeah. characters in the Beggar's Opera. No Never heard of. Instantly, the uh, the Lord Chamberlain shut it down. They said, No, you can't, you can't put this on, because uh, initially, you know, Beggar's Opera was highly satirical of the then Prime Minister mm-hmm. Sir Robert Walpole, his whole institution of bribery and corruption and so forth. And so Polly was banned from the stage. But of course, once that happens, people want to know what it's what it's about. And so Gay. Had he he was perhaps a little too elaborate in his planning for the publication of Polly because as soon as it came out, this nice quarto edition, there were already a couple of editions, cheaper and you know, illicit editions. And so, Gay sued the printer, and so, trouble tracking this fellow down. And of course, you know, English justice does not move swiftly. And by the time Chancery ruled on the, on the piracy and, and found that Gay was right, the poor author had been dead five years. While we had
0: this copyright protection, it, it only was uh, so effective. Many of these authors didn't have much money at all, so if something did break the law, they'd have to go get a lawyer, they'd mm-hmm. have to go through all that process, it's, whereas, uh, again, it's the booksellers that had the money. Yes. Yes. Uh, and it seems to me that that's probably where all the big battles took place, was between yeah. booksellers.
1: It, it did, yes. The major case in the 18th century was this Donaldson v. Beckett. It's a, it a wonderful, wonderful battlefield. You know, I, th- I always think of it as revenge for Culloden. You know, the, the, this little Scottish independent bookseller takes on the mightiest English booksellers in the House of Lords and and, and wins. It's this real David and Goliath story with a good ending. Here we have Alexander Donaldson. Uh, he's actually well, well healed by the family. The family has his grandfather had published a, an Edinburgh newspaper. And, and so he, he started off well, but certainly increased the family fortune. His brother printed. Uh, he, he had his own you know, publishing house, and he had his own newspaper and whatnot. In, in Edinburgh, uh, Donaldson took legal advice, certainly, and decided that Thompson Seasons had come out of copyright, it was by his countryman, James Thompson. And so he published an edition of uh, Thompson's season. This so would have been, sorry, after 14 years
0: or after 28 years? Uh, Thompson
1: died in 1748. So I think he left that 14 years after 1748, which is
0: 1762,
1: uh, Thompson came out with. After that, Thompson... So is
0: it 14 years after the, the author The death died? of the author, yeah. Is that, that what the law was? I thought it was
1: well, it was after, after the second copyright term Thompson would have... He was alive up until 1748, so the first term would have expired, and then whatever the you know, the date was, if it was 1730, there'd be 28 years after that okay. maximum. So that's that seems to be how it worked. Although I don't think the you know as I say the booksellers didn't particularly bother with this, and so Andrew Miller this uh, he mounted a suit over Thompson seasons with his other. A small-time bookseller named Robert Taylor, and actually won his case for perpetual monopoly in 1769.
0: So that would have been the one that supported common law.
1: Yes, yeah, it, it upheld the common law right, and so Miller had been vindicated all his life. He spent saying, you know, booksellers are the ones who take the risk, therefore they should should have copyright ad infinitum. And so Miller won his case, unfortunately he died the year before, so it was a posthumous victory. But from 1769 up until 1774, the booksellers in London had a, had a heyday, and so the price of copyrights kept going up and up and up, because you know, if you own the rights to something forever and you don't want yeah. to sell that, you think, this is as good as it gets. Whereas if it's, if you can only, I'll sell you my book for a year. You're gonna think, oh, okay, but that's not such a good. You know, I'm not gonna invest a whole lot of money in that. So, for a brief period, five years, London booksellers were on this kind of roller coaster with the buying copies and shares, and they were like, you know, it's copyright, like
0: I, copyright from the, all these these authors. Then, uh,
1: they would. Mainly buy from themselves. They had this kind of their own kind of stock market on the go. They, they you know, they would sell. they have little slips that said, you know, one thirty-sixth of one sixty-fourth of Robinson Crusoe. And of course, Daypo would never get any of this. Uh, he's long since dead and and buried. But booksellers acted like they were a law unto themselves. You know, they had their own their own stationers company. They had, they had their own particular clusters, uh, congers, separate sort of you know, affiliations. And if you were from the outside, if you're a small independent bookseller. Tough luck uh, in, for most cases. The Dodsley started up independently, but uh, Robert Dodsley had a, a lift up from Pope. We lent him money and cachet, uh, customers and whatnot. However, it was very re- very hard for an independent bookseller to get anywhere apart from a very meager existence. So m- basically, Miller triumphed over the Congers in the from something. Did- Oh, they're um, associations of booksellers. Okay.
0: So they the, the the common law approach won, but then... For five years. For five years, and then our buddy up in Scotland... Donaldson. He... He tackled him. Tackled him. Yeah. He actually read the, the law of 1710 and said, I'm going to go print the seasons mm-hmm. on my own because the law says that I can. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, he was right, uh, but... He was being constantly being sued. The conglomerate, they didn't want this to happen because it would screw up their lovely little monopoly of, of this yeah. business, right?
1: And that's what they tended to do, to, to maintain this facade of legality. They would say, right, uh, you know, we'll sue you. And there was an example of somebody who actually said, okay, go ahead, sue me. And, and they said, okay, we'll buy you. And they actually paid this fellow more to, not to publish than to publish. And so he was sort of on this retainer for like 20 years. Uh, he was a rogue. He was a kind of a renegade. They bought him off. And right. They bought him off, yeah. They bought him off.
0: Okay, so Donaldson won his case.
1: Donaldson won his case in 1774 in the House of Lords, uh, yeah. which was, apart. I guess, the only thing that could possibly go against the House of Lords decision was the monarch. And after Charles I, who, who would want to attempt that? Uh, so the House of Lords decision was regarded as, you know, that's it no higher court in the land, uh, and Donaldson so won.
0: really put weight behind that 1710 law, then?
1: Yeah, it took him 64 years to figure out that the Copyright Act meant what it said. It pretty much was business as usual after that, anyway, because if you're going to embark on something that uh, that is as big as Shakespeare's plays or Johnson's Dictionary or Pope's works or whatever, any multi-volume, project. You need other, other booksellers to uh, engage with, to uh, s- spread the profits or losses, as the case may be in, in these projects. So it was a great decision. The long term impact was that it was quite favorable to Scottish bookselling throughout the 19th century when Glasgow rivaled London for, for publishing. And Donaldson himself, you know, it was a great victory for him.
0: No, sorry. It also opened up okay, uh, publishers from in the United States, for example. Yeah, wouldn't have to worry about any of this, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. America uh, law that's down, down the road was, a little yeah, bit. Yeah, follow pretty much the British example.
0: You know, they could take all the stuff that was out of uh, right, and print it out for yep. nothing over in the states yes. and make a lot of mm-hmm. money for nothing,
1: which they did quite <laughs> even when it was in copyright, as, as Dickens found out.
0: Because who's going to check it out? Okay, so this takes us from. We've, we've got this, this big decision then by the House of Lords in the 1770s. Now, what happens from that point on? Anything? Well, that
1: from that point on, we do have uh, a greater sense of freedom. It shows greater respect for Queen Anne's principle of greater education.
0: Basically, meaning that then anyone can publish. Stuff that's in, in the public domain because the more people that read it, the, the better it is for, yeah. for everyone. Yeah,
1: and that was Donaldson's principle. Yeah, uh, he really got up London booksellers' noses by opening his own shop in the very heart of London. Uh, here, and I think this must have been a first—a uh, book, you know, somebody in Scotland. Uh, that's so successful. Yeah. I, I don't know much about the history of advertising, but I imagine that you won't find many who who actually kind of they say this stack of books. You know, you got Milton, Shakespeare, uh, Lamer, Wortley Monitor. You buy this stack of books, and it costs you in the London shops thirty-two pounds. You buy it at my shop, it costs sixteen pounds. He had like a, a list of ten titles, London prices. Donaldson prices. I think he spearheaded uh, the move to towards you know comparative advertising. But also discount prices. Discount prices. <laughs> stack them high. Sell them yeah. cheap.
0: Now they're doing that in the
1: supermarkets. Yeah. yeah. You know, the nice end of Donaldson's story is that uh, he retired, lived very well, passed on a, a huge estate to his son, you know, like 100,000 pounds or something. His son doubled it, and when he died, he bequeathed his money to Donaldson Hospital in Edinburgh for the deaf. Which, last I heard, was still on the go. I think they may have just sold up in Edinburgh, but for somebody who made a, a huge amount of money, millions by the, the today's standards. Well, Warren Buffett. But exactly. You know, Somebody who, who made a stack of money and then turns it over to the public good, I think is fulfilling the mandate of Queen
0: Anne's encouragement of learning. He wasn't just doing it for his own benefit. He truly was a a philanthropist, if mm. you will, or, and and did have the greater good in, in mind when he did this. Yes. Which yeah. is which yeah. is wonderful, isn't it? Has yeah. is there, is there been a biography of this guy? Or?
1: No, yeah. he's hard, hardly known, except for you know, obscure copyright scholars like myself. <laughs> Sounds uh, like a great there's Mark book. Rose. Uh, Mark Rose did a wonderful book on authors and owners, published a book Ooh, about a dozen years ago he he spends a good deal of time on Donaldson and Certainly more needs to be known. I think it, or at least he deserves to be more widely known as a as a philanthropist and a, as a as a bookseller
0: it, that's to, sort of taken us to the end of the eighteenth century. There's a lot more for us to maybe there isn't a lot more. Maybe this with that ruling did that set things in place until Recently, pretty
1: or? much the main revisions to copyright, and this is an oversimplification, yeah. but we tend to look at what the texts tell us is that you know we we do find extensions, various lengthenings of the yeah of from, the statutory from, limitations. That's right, because
0: right, we were at twenty-eight years, yeah. Then and, that was bumped up to fifty, 50 years after the, the death after of, the death of the author. Would that just just to clarify the death of the author? But what happens if during the lifetime of the author? The author said to the printer or the, the bookseller, You can print out my my work. You have the right to do this forever. Could they have done that? Uh,
1: you'd have to get a lawyer into for that, I, I'm sure. But it would depend on, you know, if the heirs, if he had errors in mind, if, if his heirs were sympathetic to that, because quite often the, you know, the, well, the, the heirs I'd are know, always going to be sympathetic an to making money. For an author's uh, heirs will, will have different ideas.
0: Yeah, but they'll like the money, though.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Presumably, authors' uh, demands do not supersede the law of the land when yeah. it comes down to that. Although, you know, there are exceptions. There's that glorious uh, exception uh, in uh, Parliament uh, where the proceeds from Peter Pan go to the Great Ormond Street Hospital. Mm-hmm. This wonderful clause, just this special book. And of course, you know, the Bible is a special case as well. So there are there are a few exceptions whether an author's wishes can supersede copyright. I, uh, my initial response would be no, of course not. Okay. So, so
0: you're saying that basically then what happened is that they, they went from 28 to 50 years after they died. Yeah, and, and
1: then in uh, I think I think it was the 1st of January 1996. The uh, the UK copyright term was extended to 70 years to keep it, keep up with the copyright terms in France and Germany, I believe, and you know, with the, uh, with the, the EC, uh, and that caused a bit of mayhem at the time, because I think uh, somebody was all ready to come up with a, uh, an edition of H.G. Wells, and suddenly they're faced with this, what do the executors or the heirs of H.G. Wells think about this? Suddenly there's a 20-year extension. I wonder... <laughs> I never did follow that up uh, so I, I assume they just came to some kind of agreement with the with the heirs because you, if, if they had any kind of appreciation of the works themselves, you'd think they would want them out there they'd
0: want them out there, but they'd want a piece of the action too, I yeah. think Interesting but still, so now it
1: seems like we have a kind of a, a merging of it's all but perpetual monopoly when you think of 70 you know, seven years will the universe last 70 years? Uh, will there be a publishing industry? The availability on the uh, on the web of, of texts uh, seems to challenge uh, a lot of the notions of copyright. Is is copyright itself going to become a, a kind of a chimerical notion? I, I don't think so. I think we'll continue to go to chapters and buy books, the proceeds of which will be shared, you know, the publishers and, and the authors, or their heirs, or their assigns, and so on. But what do I know? I'm a, an English professor.
0: In an ivory tower. A relic. Here in uh, Saint John's,
1: but I've, I I believe that books are great products. I've got some that are you know hundreds of years old, and they're as useful as they were the day they rolled off the printing press. Uh, they're fabulous inventions. Quite I the know same
0: Price said too, isn't it? He said that they were the greatest uh, mechanical invention. Of, you know, oh, God I believe man's, it. It. man's ever come up with it. I believe it. Uh, yeah. Quote. Five hundred years is a pretty good uh, run for a, a product that has, hasn't really changed a huge amount.
1: Yeah, uh, and they don't short out if you read them in the bath or. In, Things like that—they're—they're quite—they're uh, quite
0: versatile things, you know.
1: You can carry them to the beach and not worry, depending on the book, of course. But if you get sand on it, try that with your power book. Um If you get water on it, it's not—it's not, not a complete catastrophe. Uh, and now I can—I've I, got you know, the British Library on this huge and searchable uh, 18th-century database o- online here. Our, our university just. Happen to subscribe to this Echo uh, 18th century collections online, and so I, in theory, uh, don't tell my uh, you know my grant givers this, but uh, I don't particularly need to go to the British Library to look at books. Now I will for manuscripts, which is I, I do have a, a quite a claim to
0: work on. But you do you get you want to you want to touch you want to look at the marginalia. You want to as a
1: bibliographer, certainly yeah.
0: you biblio- why? bibliographers
1: want to. Well, you you want to examine the physical properties of the book.
0: But if 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 all the if all the content is there, even the marginalia, if it, if it's there, mm. well, why do you have to go touch it?
1: Um, you don't have to touch it, but uh, certainly there are things you see uh, in the actual copy which you don't see on screen. You know, chain lines. This is something we do in bibliography class, but the actual texture of the paper, uh, you will find, you know, you don't get bindings, for example. Yeah, but again, uh, uh,
0: if, you, if, you're talk- if you're researching the content, no it doesn't matter about no. the binding no. or, the, or no. the paper or anything. No,
1: no. But I'm talking about you know, the bibliographer in me wants to see the actual copy. The bibliophile. Uh, and the bibliophile, too.
0: Any parting shots, any uh, any thoughts about the future of
1: copyright? The future of copyright? Uh, I think it'll be with us. I'm a little concerned about the red tape that that we're we're faced with as lecturers. If we have to, we're supposed to write to people if we want to show a video clip in class. And I'm all so for what the what encouragement of learning rather than the discouragement through um, through hoops that we have to run through. So you're with Donaldson. I'm with Donaldson all the way. Yeah. Great respect for Miller. Um, I think he did he did as. Doctor Johnson said, I respect Mr. Miller, he has raised the price of literature. He he did he did well by the authors. He rewarded those who helped reward him, and yet uh, he was the he was the he was the enemy to people like Donaldson. Uh, and I think Donaldson shook things up to a certain extent, but yeah, you know, we still had big you know, House of Longman did not crumble. It, it, it was still on the go, I think, in the into the nineteen sixties, having
0: started in the seventeen twenties. What's interesting, just just, wrapping this up, getting back to the 18th century, is that a lot of the greatest writers were right in there with this whole copyright debate. Johnson and uh, Pope and uh, Boswell, they were right in there, weren't they? Boswell, he was a lawyer, lawyer, an
1: Edinburgh solicitor. Uh, He also compiled uh, the judge's opinion on the case... Uh, that was the precursor to Donaldson v. Beckett. Uh, the summer before, in 1773, uh, Boswell was the junior counsel on a case of, of oh, Stackhouse's Bible, and it was a compilation of theological scholarship. Scottish judges were confronted with this this idea of uh, copyright infringement and having to look at this what they regarded as an, an English act, the English Copyright Act, and Scotland was allowed to retain its own legal system, which it still has to this day, and their system is rooted in Roman law as opposed to the English system in common law. So the the Scots, the the most um, revered legal minds of the Enlightenment in Scotland looked at copyright and said, well, we don't know what that is. It's something they they weren't really bothered with uh, as a piece of English legislation. But they ruled something like, you know, twelve or thirteen to one uh, against the case, against this book. So they, they favored the, the the freedom of the, the relative freedom of literary property. The yeah. book in question, they said it was a compilation. It was a, what, what book is this? Um, Stackhouse's Bible. I see, okay. It's a it was a collection of a massive collection of commentaries on the Bible. So the, the bookseller was really it was a costly project, mainly to do with hiring editors and and translators. But it wasn't really an original work; it was commentaries on the old New Testament.
0: So they sort of came to the same result that the House of Lords did, by, by a different route. Then. Yeah. yeah,
1: yeah, and Donaldson used decision. It was uh, you know Donaldson was once again victorious, and he got James Boswell to gather. The decisions of the judges of the court of session
0: to bring the Scottish ruling back down to London to use and, that? and
1: yeah he yeah. published yeah he published his own edition it, just in time for the House of Lords session so it was on the streets we because Donaldson had his own outlet in London we know that it was pretty much on uh, sure thing It was on the streets well, well, London
0: the, the stack house uh, the, uh, the, the judge's decision in favor of literary you know property it was great propaganda
1: what a great time
0: yeah. It seems to me that Donaldson... Begging, he's begging for someone to do so his oh, you
1: know. if work. I, if I have another uh, decade in me, I'll, I'll, I'll try and do <laughs> some more for Donaldson. I'll, he'll be a major part of my book on copyright, right. which I hope to get done in time for the 300th anniversary of uh, legislation. 2009-2010. Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: well, we'll, uh, we'll hope that you get through. Thanks very much for your time.
1: Oh, well, thank you very much, Nigel.
0: I've been talking with Don Nichol, who is an 18th century copyright expert in the history of the book and a professor at Memorial University in St. John's, Newfoundland. Sure. Thanks again.